If you would, take your Bible and turn to John chapter 4. Y'all heard me getting excited during the offertory this morning. I goofed and left the, uh, turned the mute off of my mic pack, and Sarah leaned over because halfway through the song service, I was tapping on uh, the, I asked the Lord that I might grow him, and she thought I was telling her that she had made a mistake in the bulletin, and then I came back after praying, and she said, you're just excited, and I'm like, yeah, that's a great song, and brother... The, the song we just sang, that's fantastic. Wonderful. You know, when we sing some of the older hymns, I can almost hear s- the little churches that I was a part of back home. Uh, just I, I can hear uh, some of the distinct voices that were in those congregations singing some of these, these hymns. And one day we'll sing them all together again. Well, what we have in John's Gospel is a reminder, friends, that we are perpetual recipients of the grace of God. In everything that we receive, we have been given grace. In every breath, every meal, every relationship, God is acting supernaturally, giving us grace. And that's what we found in our, uh, our call to worship this morning at John chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. We have grace upon grace as we come to the text in John chapter 4 today. This is the theme of all of John's Gospel, that we are beggars in need of grace. And so it is in the narrative in the drama that we find here of Jesus and this woman of Samaria. Now, I'm going to read, if I don't fall apart, um, all 45 verses. So here's what I'm going to ask. If you're uh, able to stand through all of those verses, uh, please stand as we do honor the reading of God's Word. If you're not able to stand, uh, please don't feel bad uh, just keeping your seat as we read through this passage Uh, together for the first time uh, this morning. John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son To Joseph, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. The woman said to Him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up unto eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. 
What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, who do you seek or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me to accomplish His work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and other reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After these two days, he departed Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. This is God's word to you and I today, beloved. Might we receive it with gratitude. Would you pray with me? Father, we come into your presence joyful and trembling at the reality that you have testified here before this community and, Father, before the world, that you are the Savior of the world, that Christ is the Redeemer. Father, might we come today and rejoice in that truth. Might you inscribe the truths here in your word upon all of our hearts in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. When Sarah and I, a couple weeks ago, and I'll eventually get all of my Virginia stories uh, out, um, but uh, when Sarah and I and our family went to Virginia a couple weeks ago, we had the joy of seeing uh, the president, third president uh, of the United States uh, home, Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's home. Uh, and Thomas Jefferson was an interesting man, an adventurer, a statesman, uh, but he was merely a man. He, 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 he had a lot of flaws, uh, made a lot of, uh, a lot of mistakes. I, I found it interesting. I was reading, uh, Thomas Jefferson had... Uh, he had ten rules by which you should live. Number three was distinctly inscribed, and you could buy little tokens, t-shirts, all kinds of things in the gift shop with Thomas Jefferson's ten rules. And number three was never spend your money before you have earned it. And if you finish the tour of Monticello, you'll find that a couple days after uh, Thomas Jefferson passed away, his belongings were auctioned off uh, on the back lawn of his property because he died $107,000 uh, 
in debt. So Jefferson had some great ideals that didn't always pan out in practicality. Um, almost $3 million worth of, of debt in our day, if you think about that. Also, his views on, on slavery were complicated. Um, he's known to have said that he believed slavery in and of itself was the outworking of moral depravity and that it was a hideous blot and yet he was not willing to divest himself of his own slave holdings uh, because that would further complicate his financial situation. And you'll also find throughout his life some manipulative tactics and things that I won't mention here, whereby he ended up having uh, children with his own slaves. Um, he, he would go on later to say, and the reason that I bring this up, he would say, uh, that he believed the Constitution was merely a promissory note to generations yet unborn. That is, that he believed there was potential in the documents that he wrote uh, that slavery one day would become a, a thing of the past. And we've found in our own day that slavery has come to an end. But friends, uh, what I, I want to encourage you with is this. Thomas Jefferson may have written in a way that the, that, that the things he was writing were promissory notes, that they were mere potentials, that, that things could come to pass. God doesn't write that way. When God gives us His declarations in His Word, they are sure and enduring. You see... What I want us to come to an understanding of today in light of John chapter 4, and you're going to get a lot of broad strokes today. I'm not going to preach all 45 verses. We will make it to lunch. Unless I get really excited, and we may, we may be here a while, I, you know. Um, but Jesus does not act hypothetically. Uh, he doesn't just wish that something would happen. You see, according to the Word of God, there is no child of Adam, no living human being, who does not have permission to come freely and boldly before the throne of grace this morning and in Christ come to find glorious salvation. The salvation offered in Christ is not hypothetical. It is actual and it is actually offered to everyone. The question is, will everyone come? You see, the universal reality of the Christian faith is not that all will come to saving faith, but that all have permission to come to saving faith. No one who turns from their sins and pleads the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ will be refused because of their gender, their intelligence, their education, their race, their nationality, their wealth, or their social standing, and if you want to add to that, or because of their creed. We are accepted in Christ only because of the blood of Christ by the power of the Spirit of Almighty God. Friends, I, as some of you have heard on the streets throughout the past ten years of my pastorate that I'm somewhat reformed, and that's an ish, or that I'm Calvinistic, or whatever other label that people will pour over me either as adulation or a pejorative. But one of the things that I, I worry about in all of those terms is that we start to believe that our, the, that our theology, that our theological understanding is what garners us favor before God. I promise you, on the authority of the Word of God, the only reason that any of us can come before the living God this morning is because of the blood of Christ. And that alone. So no one who turns from their sins and, and pleads that blood will ever be refused. We have all who have come to Christ merely received grace upon grace. And here in John chapter 4, we have the dramatization of that reality that we receive grace upon grace. Do you remember what Jesus said at the end of John chapter 2. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the, thing, the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. He knew that man was utterly depraved and so he did not bear witness to them about who he 
was. Jesus was there concealing himself. And what we have in John chapter 3 is the revelation that, that, that to come to Christ, to turn from your sin and cling to the blood and to cling to Christ, you must be born again. You must be regenerated by the Spirit of God. It is only by grace that an individual comes to saving faith. Grace upon grace. Every man or woman, boy or girl, needs new birth. And Nicodemus was the first brought forward to show us the need of grace. Nicodemus was, was laid out before us all through John chapter 3. And if you want to today, we can go through those 12 sermons. But what was pictured so plainly is that Nicodemus... This righteous man, this religious man, this, the, 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 this Pharisee was a man who needed to receive grace upon grace. And so it is for each one of us here. But he wasn't the only one who needed grace. He wasn't the only one who needed the kindness of the Lord. What we find in John chapter 4 is that there's another person that needs grace. And this woman... This woman is not religious. Here is a woman of ill, rep Ill repute. Here, here is a woman who would not have been welcomed into the social clubs. Here is the woman who would not have been welcomed into the country club. Here is the woman who, if she walked into the church today, there would be murmuring from those who are self-righteous. This is a woman with a reputation. This was a woman who had a backstory. So much so that she comes in the, it says in John chapter 4 that she, it was about the sixth hour. That means it was about noon. It was the hottest part of the day. It was the part of the day when nobody goes to the well. And that was the hour that she went because of all of her shame, because all of her filth, because of all of her social stigma. And just by chance, now we all know that chance is in a biblical term. By God's providence, here is our beloved Savior to meet this woman, to show to us that not only do the religious need grace upon grace, but the lowest people also need and can receive that grace. She came here for water to this well, but she was met by our Savior, and He gave her wa the water of eternal life. This was something that she didn't even know that she needed. But it's something that satisfied her completely. She, she went to the well merely to gather some water. What a mundane thing. Now we have the, you know, the faucet. And we just go get a, a, a glass of, of water. And I want you to see in that reality that the way that our Savior often works out the salvation of those who God, the Father, has given to Him in time. The way that the Son, and the, under the power of the Spirit, that that works out is often in the mundane things of life. One of the reasons why I believe that the church is so weak today is because she has been duped by a bunch of quote-unquote professionals, pastors, to think that if you bring them in here, we'll get them saved. That there's something that is special that I must do that, so that people can come to saving faith. But what we actually find in the, in the Word of God consistently is that as we live our lives faithfully before the Lord, God will do the work of redemption in the mundane, ordinary circumstances of life. Consequently, I believe our gathering this morning is for the equipping of the saints that you may do the work of the ministry seven days a week, not just on Sunday morning. Not only did she receive Jesus, but we saw in this narrative, and it's a fantastic narrative, isn't it? Like, I started thinking, okay, where am I going to stop reading? Okay, I'll stop there. No, I can't, I, I'll stop there. No, I, I, and by the time I got to verse 45, I'm just like, well, that's a good place to stop. I mean, it's all fantastic. And what we see is here this woman of ill repute comes to the well merely for a glass of water. And the consequence of that interaction is that a multitude in her town become believers on the Lord Jesus Christ. I can imagine that there will be a whole little community in heaven that will be thankful for that one bucket of water. 
Think about the contrast, beloved, between our dear Nicodemus, the learned man, and you have to, when you read your Bible, you have to see what the authors are doing in broad strokes. And this is what is robbed. When, when you are given the t-shirt that has John 3.16 written on it, and that's the only verse that you ever know, oh, friends, you rob yourself of so much glory that is in the text. Because there is a, a bigger picture that is being laid before us here in John's Gospel. And John's Gospel friends. Let me tell you what John's gospel was for. It was not meant merely to just take in little bitty chunks. It was something to be read in its fullness. The chapter numbers and the verse numbers didn't come until later. This is something to, to maybe one day we'll come in and we'll just read the whole thing together. It's, it's gorgeous to see all that's going on. So what, what you have to see here is the contrast between Nicodemus and, and this woman. He was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. He was religious. She was not. He was a politician. She had more shame than she did fame. He was a scholar. She was altogether uneducated. He was moral. She was not. He, was, uh, he had a name, a reputation. We know him as Nicodemus, but to this very hour, we merely know her as the woman of Samaria or the woman at the well. He came at night to guard his reputation. She came in the middle of the day because of her reputation. He came seeking answers. Jesus came seeking her. He was a man. She was a woman. There's one thing that was certain about both of them, and that is they needed grace upon grace. And they found it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nicodemus is a picture that no one can raise too high in their education, in their religious standing, in their morality, in their reputation, as to be above the need for salvation. But this dear woman that is before us and will be in the weeks ahead, she is before us so that no one may sink so low as to believe that they are beyond the reach of grace. These two narratives are placed here at the beginning of John's Gospel and they end with these words in verse 42. This is indeed the Savior of the world. What this teaches us this morning today, friends, is no matter who you are, no matter what your story is, no matter what your pedigree is, there is one propitiator, there is one Savior, there is one Redeemer, there is one way to come to the Father, and it is through the Lord Jesus Christ. But what is more important than the differences, and friends, can I tell you something? I think one of the things that we struggle with inside the body of Christ to this day you know, I've, I've pejoratively, from time to time throughout my pastorate, been uh, chided. Boy, you said something that sounded an awful lot like Presbyterianism. Well, we have a whole lot more in agreement with our Presbyterian brothers and sisters than we do at odds with them. And you can start to get rattled and upset when I start baptizing infants, and I won't. But friends, shouldn't we delight in the reality of what God has done that is similar instead of constantly picking at the divisive issues? That's just my... Well, I promise you that is the, the way that I will lead. And, I, and let's just get this off and cleared out, and it's not part of the text. I am not a Presbyterian, and I am not seeking to make this church a Presbyterian church. I am seeking to live under every word of the Gospel. And if a Presbyterian said it first, well then, amen anyhow. Let's not be petulant people. Let's live under the authority of God's Word. And let's sharpen our Presbyterian brothers. One of the joys, I'm not going to live on this, but one of the joys that I've had in this church is that we've had dear families from other movements who have not been able to stay in their churches, and they've come here uh, because of uh, the fellowship that they have here and because of the Word being put forward. Let's not live with denominational labels as some sort of point of pride. I hope that God would, would break that in us. You see, what, what is more important in our lives than the differences is our similarities. We are more alike than different, aren't we? 
And friends, I would just contend with you this morning that when we fail to see that we are more alike than we are different with people that we may have disagreements with, it is always because we've taken our eyes off of Christ and we're looking at each other. But when we put our eyes on Jesus, we will see that we have so much more in common than we ever have in disagreement. So here are the similarities. One, both Nicodemus and the nameless woman at the well thought that they were spiritually well. They both showed an appetite, a hunger, and we'll get to that in a minute. But in their minds, they were okay. In their minds, all was well. In their minds, they were going about daily living. And everything was, was, was copacetic. It was all okay. I can't tell you the number of people that I interact with on a weekly basis who really believe that they're okay with God and, and, and that they're, they're ultimately going to wind up in heaven. And, and mostly they have those feelings because there are pukish people in the ministry who make merchandise of individuals and would rather get money from them than tell them the truth. And so they lead lives just thinking, I'm going to just live my life however and everything will be okay. It's all all right. And friends, you can find those in religious circles and you can find those in every strata of life. People typically think that they're okay. It's part of our spiritual depravity that we are blinded to our desperate need for Jesus. And both of these people, Nicodemus and the woman at the well, thought that they were spiritually well. They also were both people that when this truth was spoken to them, they, they couldn't understand. They, they took everything in a crude, literal sense. Some people pride themselves on taking every ounce of the Word of God literally. I, I've heard bellicose statements, I can't tell you for how long. Well, I interpret my Bible literally. And friends, I, I don't want to... I don't want to pick a fight here. We should take, we should aim at coming away from the Word of God with the literal intent that the original author uh, wrote. Uh, we want to not allegorize everything. And, and I'm, I'm in that camp decidedly. But can I, I tell you that, that when we come with braggadocious pride to the text as though we are erudite in our thinking and others are not, often we miss the reality that, do you know what we need more than anything when we interpret our Bible? The Spirit of Almighty God to open our eyes to its meaning. I promise you this morning on the authority of the Word of God that we are not dependent upon any system, and I've had a bunch of them offered to me. But we are not dependent upon a system to interpret this book rightly. We are dependent upon God Himself. I believe that with every fiber of my being. And, and think about it. Look at I'm not just I'm not just grinding an axe here. Nicodemus is told, Nicodemus, before you can come, before you can even see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, being the good literalist that he was, asked the question, well, do I have to go back into my mother's womb? Now, we laugh about it now, but it really was a problem. And, and when we come to the woman at the well, Dallas, don't you see what happens? He says, look, if I give you water, you will never thirst again. That This water will be ever flowing. And what does the woman say? She doesn't take an allegorical spiritual meaning of what Jesus is really getting at. What she says is great. Give me that water because I don't want to have to keep coming back to this stinking well. She's very literal. And, and friends, I'm not attacking a literal hermeneutic. We, we should uphold that, but not to the extent that we think we are capable of interpreting the Word of God apart from the Spirit of God. We should be very careful about that reality. Both of them were crudely literal. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the, uh, of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, as he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Friends, this morning, if any of us 
understand any aspect of the Word of God, we have reason to praise God eternally because it is only through the Spirit of God that we come to that understanding. Now, if we just stopped there this morning, we are done with the question of how we come to Christ. Because we must understand the Gospel, and the only way to understand the Gospel is that we understand it in accordance with the Word of God. And beloved, if it is the Spirit of God that has to illuminate the text that we might understand it rightly and apply it rightly, how could we ever come to Christ apart from the Spirit of God? It is only through His work that we know Him. Third, both of them sensed that there was a spiritual need in their life. There was a, a longing. There was something imprinted on their hearts. There, there was something about this world that, 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 that they, they could never receive ultimate satisfaction. Nicodemus was the scholarly type. You know, he probably had books and, 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 and he was always frenetically looking for answers and, and and he just could, I need more. I need to understand more. I need more knowledge. And, and ultimately, none of that knowledge ever satisfied him. The woman at the well had five husbands. Relationships, the security that would come alongside of those relationships in this particular age. But was there ever really satisfaction in human relationships for this woman that has this reputation. Uh, and ultimately what we find is that both of them had to come to the One who could cure their thirst. Who could quench uh, what was the deepest longing in their soul. Uh, C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, then the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And I would make the argument that it's more than that. It's not just that we were made for another world, but that we were made for a relationship with a particular individual. Augustine said, You have made us for Yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in You. So both of these people had a sense of a spiritual need. And both were actually in need of salvation. Romans chapter 3, verses 22 through 24 tell us, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified only by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Everyone is ruined in Adam. We all come with an actual universal need for salvation. All have turned aside, Romans 3 also teaches in verse 12. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. I don't know. I still to this day, and I wish somebody could explain it to me, when you get to the doctrine of radical depravity, that is that everything that we do apart from Christ could never bring us to salvation. And someone says, oh, but I think if we try real hard, well, I, but I know some really good people. And every time I'm just like, Romans chapter 3, verse 12. Not, not, the, it, Paul puts, no, not even one. Because he knows the argument's going to be, but my grandma. And y'all, I got a grandma. I, I have a great grandmother who I legitimately, as I think about her, I, I don't see a whole lot of depravity in her. But then again, I met her when she was like in her 60s and had been saved for 40 years. Not one of us has ever come to the Father without a radical uh, universal need for redemption. And so this was similar not only between Nicodemus and this woman that is unnamed, but we have that same radical need for salvation at this very moment. Both thought they were spiritually well. Both were crudely literal. Both sensed a spiritual need. And both were lost. There is the universal of the Gospel. The universal of the Gospel is that we all need grace upon grace. And the other... So, so one universal of the Gospel, people ask me, are you a universalist? Are you a universal atonement guy? No, but I am a universalist. Just qualify it correctly. The one universal that I absolutely agree with 
is that everyone needs grace upon grace. That is without equivocation, without qualification. And the other universal is that we are all who are in Christ are called to take the Gospel to every person in the world that we can. We universally need grace and we're universally called to take the Gospel into the community. Jay Clatworthy is not the only person at Providence Baptist Church responsible for heralding the good news of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a universal call. It is a universal command to the entire church to herald the Gospel that we universally needed. You understand the universalism of the church now. I'm glad that we've got that straightened out. And so, in light of those universal realities, we rejoice knowing that no one who turns from their sin and pleads the blood of Christ, no one, in spite of their education, again, their race, nationality, wealth, or social standing, will ever be turned away. Everyone needs grace. Everyone has permission to come to Christ. And we are all called to tell everyone. And then someone will walk in and say, so Jesus died for everyone. The atonement is universal. And the answer to that is no. Universally we need grace. Universally we're called to dispense with that grace when we've received it. What is, listen, can I tell you one of the glories of John chapter five, uh, 4? Is that when the woman at the well received this water of everlasting life, she didn't need someone to come give her an evangelism program. She was so lit on fire about the reality that this is the Christ that she went out and everyone knew that she had come to Him. The same thing can be said. Read through the first four chapters. You'll get a sense of what the evangelistic program was in this particular narrative. And it was that the Spirit of God was regenerating hearts. They were seeing who Christ is. And then they were flooding the community, making much of Jesus. They were actually living out what John had proclaimed. He must increase and I must decrease. And then comes along in the year 1900 a bunch of theological nudnicks. That's the nicest term that I can come up with. And they want to make a name for themselves. So they come up with programs and pedigrees and all of this nonsense. And do you know what has happened because of those things? Not one person more has come to Christ because of all of that. Beloved, when you fall in love with Jesus and you know that He is the one that your soul radically needs, I promise you your evangelism will get better. When Jesus becomes large and people become small, you turn into a red-hot, fiery evangelist. That's what's going on here. Boy, that was free. That's not even in the notes. I'm on definite atonement today. All right. So uh, there, there are many people, even in Baptist circle, who clamor and fight over this. I had a professor in college who was a definite atonement. And let, let's just dispense with this. So, so universal atonement, I don't want to use too crude of language, but bring it down. The universal atonement says Jesus died potentially for everyone. Does that make sense? Definite atonement says Jesus died for those that the Father intended to save and gave to the Son. It's that simple. And I had professors in college who preached entire chapel messages about universal atonement. We're universalists. We're universalists because Baptists, we're going to be universalists. And I'm just sitting there going, I love Jesus and y'all are confusing me. And so I went and talked to this professor and he said, actually, I believe in definite atonement, but the administration's so fired up about this, I preached that message. I lost a lot of respect in that moment. Don't just, don't just stand on something because... The administration. Anyway, friends, this is a hotly debated doctrine, but I think that it, 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 it matters. It's important. Now, I've just got done telling you that, that we shouldn't pick at differences, but this is a difference that I do think matters. And I believe that, that the doctrine of definite atonement is clearly taught in the Word of God. That Jesus did not die for every person, but only for those who call on His name. That He did not die potentially for all, but He died effectually and really and radically and eternally for those that the Father gave to Him. 
I believe that with everything in me. Now hear me. We can disagree on this, and I will still love you. You can think I'm wrong, and I will love you because you are wrong. That was supposed to get a chuckle. And some of you might wonder, why does this matter so much to him? One, because I believe the Bible teaches it. And when I believe that Bible, the Bible teaches something, listen, I am from the show me state. Once you show me it's in here, then I am like a rabid coon dog that won't let up. That's just how I am. I believe it's here, but there's a second reason that's more personal, and I want to be transparent about it. In the year 1900, a man named John McLeod Campbell was born. He would go on to, to lead a movement called the Campbellite Movement, whose moniker, whose, 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 whose notoriety and fame and what they were known for was, was a, a, a statement that we hold no creed but Christ. There were individuals who pushed into the American psyche, into the American religious mind. We do not need creeds. We merely believe the Word of God. Can I tell you something? When somebody camp shows up and they stand at a pulpit and they say, we need no, one, we need no creed but Christ. We're not going to clarify what we believe. We just believe Jesus. I promise you they're getting ready to shove down your throat a creed. And it's probably a heretical one and they don't want to write it down because they're wrong. And I believe that's the case here. Here was, here was he, John McLeod Campbell started out as a Presbyterian pastor. And he, he started to sense that assurance of salvation was a problem for some in the congregation. So instead of just heralding the Word and allowing the Spirit to do the work, John, Campbell, or John McLeod Campbell did what a lot of preachers do. He came up with an idea, and that is the death knell of good theology. Every stinking time. When a pastor sees a problem and has a thought, I'm going to fix this, run. It doesn't turn out well. And so what he uh, assumed was that, that our assurance of salvation is grounded primarily in two things. One, how we feel. Let that set in for a second. How you feel is where you get your assurance. Really? Like, I felt kind of grumpy this morning. I mean, my wife's one of the nicest people I know. And there are times she gives me looks that I can't even describe what those feelings are. I just know that back away slowly and nobody's going to get hurt. Feelings? And the second, this is the one that's the most ludicrous to me. Our perfect confession of sin is where we will get assurance. The Lord brings to mind all the time Sins that I, I come to passages and I go, well, there's a whole new category of sin that I hadn't even thought of before. And as I start thinking about who I am, I go, oh my word, there's so much. Listen, the amount of sanctification that I understand I need today is infinite in compared to what I understood the first day that I came to Jesus. And so perfect confession is where we get assurance or our feelings. Those can't be the right grounds. But then he came up with an entire system. For him, salvation, again, was rooted in our affections and in our perfect confession of sin. And all of that's nonsense. Beloved, salvation is not rooted in our feelings or our perfect confession. Ultimately, this movement gave rise to a movement called that you'll probably know today as the Disciples of Christ movement, that today is a largely liberal movement. And many of my family are in that movement to this day. And I stand before you somewhat of a spiritual orphan this morning because of the doctrine of universal atonement and the way that, that John Campbell Morgan pushed away from uh, the doctrine of definite atonement. So you'll have to kind of excuse me if I'm not too fond of the man. I don't think that I'll see him in heaven, but if I do, there will be definite frustration. But the greater reason that I'm not fond of this doctrine of universal atonement is simply this. I love Jesus and I love you. And to teach you a universal atonement 
would be to water down the words of God. And I refuse to do that. I would rather have my tongue cut out than to preach to you a gospel that is dependent on your feelings or the perfection of your profession of faith. Because that kind of gospel, by nature, lacks assurance. A gospel that terminates on us will always, will always ultimately bear fruit of either pride and arrogance or despairing over who we are in and of ourselves. You see, what my Bible teaches is found. Turn, in John, turn to John chapter 10. Flip a few pages over. I want you to see the universal reality. We universally need grace upon grace. We universally need to take the gospel to every person. But Jesus said this plainly. Now, He said this. Let's not turn into to, to crude literalists when we read John chapter 10. Because if we do, we're all going to be bad sheep. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. I give them eternal life. Now, there's a statement. Does Jesus wait for us to get our act together before He gives us eternal life? No, it doesn't say that. You have to have religious people to come in and interject that into the thinking. What Jesus is saying to His church through these words is He is the one who gives eternal life. Period. So we can believe that, right? I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. There's good Trinitarian language again. The sheep hear the voice of Christ and they follow. Why? Because ultimately, the sheep, that is the souls of the saints, those who come to Christ, who did they belong to before they, they came to Jesus? Who had them in His hand prior to their repentance and faith? Anybody? The Father. They were in the Father's hand. And, G and the Father gave them to the Son. And the Son will not lose anything that the Father has given Him. And so Jesus did not lay His life down nebulously and potentially for all. He laid His life down for whom? Well, I'll tell you. In fact, let me let Jesus tell you. Don't take my word for it. Look at verse 11 in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for some sheep. All of the sheep. A couple of sheep. For the definite article sheep. For the church. For the bride of Christ. For a definite group of people. That group of people is simply this. And if you're here today and you're not in Christ, that group, my friend, is, for, is all of those who would repent of their sin and call upon the name of Jesus. Jesus did not die universally for all, but He died actually for those whom the Father had given to Him and for those that He would redeem. So we have a universal need. We have a universal command to share the Gospel with everyone. And we have an atonement for those who would receive Him. A definite atonement. And some will say, well, if, if, if you're offering the Gospel universally to everyone, but He didn't die for everyone, then it's not a real offer. Can I tell you, I think that is absolute in mid-Missouri speak, bull butter. That's nonsense. To believe that because there is an offer made and Jesus died definitely for those who would receive, that it's not a real offer. What is, we have to ask the question, what is essential for an offer of salvation to be valid? And it is this, two things. One, that if the terms of the offer are met, then that which is offered will actually be granted. 
Do you see, for an offer to be true, there have to be terms, and then when those terms are met, what is offered is actually granted. And so then the question is, what are the terms of the gospel? The terms of the gospel is that you would repent and believe. And the offer is that when you repent and believe, you have everlasting life. That, that, that you would not be turned away, that you would be saved regardless of education, regardless of background, regardless of your sin, regardless of any qualification in you. With repentance and faith comes salvation. And so I promise you, on the authority of the Word of God, the universal call, offer of the Gospel is true and real because this, not one person has ever come and, 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 and called out to Christ and, and been born again that has ever been put to eternal shame and damnation. When the, when, when, when the, 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 the demands of this offer are met, our Father liberally grants salvation. When we come in repentance and faith, when we are born again, chapter 3 of John teaches us that we must be regenerated so that we may believe. And when we come believing, our Heavenly Father gives us into the hand of Christ and we are told we will never be plucked out. Some will then say, well, it's not a true offer again if he didn't die for anyone. I still persist in that. The issue is never with the offer. The issue is always with the one who continues in their sin. The issue isn't that God is somehow limited in his ability to save. The issue is that people persist in their sin. People say, well, what about the one person who lives a really moral life and tries to do really good things and, and, and they, they really try hard to, to honor what they understand? Romans chapter 3, verse 12. No, not one. That, that's like saying, well, do you think, Jay, can Sasquatch come to Jesus? You find him, and then we'll split that hair. You won't find him. Now somebody's going to drag a Sasquatch in here. All of this, friends, I, I, I know I struggle to hold beautiful doctrine before you in a way that's cogent and and it's because it's so grand. It's beyond some of my words at times. But the question is, what is truly offered in the gospel? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to rob John Murray of his words because he's much better with them than I am. He says this, What is offered in the gospel? It is Christ who is offered. More strictly, He offers Himself. The whole gamut of redemptive grace is included in Christ. Salvation in all of its aspects and in the furthest reaches of glory consummated is the overture. For Christ is the embodiment of all. Those who are His are complete in Him. And He has made unto them the wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. When Christ invites us to Himself, it is to the possession of Himself and therefore of all that defines His identity as both Lord and Savior. Here is the number one reason why limited atonement falls into the ash heap of ignominious nonsense, also known as bull butter. It is because the, author, the offer of salvation is not an offer of an idea. When you herald the gospel, Dion, when you take the gospel into your workplace, brother, you are not taking an idea before them. You are taking the second member of the triune Godhead and you are laying him before their eyes. You are not merely taking a, a, an argument, a religious conjecture before the world. It, 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 it's, it's not... A, a quandary. It's, it's not merely something that you're trying to instill. Because salvation is not hypothetical. It's not something that's rooted in how we feel or our profession. The offer of salvation is an offer of a person. Of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And this is so important because 
Christ is the one who is truly offered in the Gospel to everyone. If you're here this morning and you've never turned in repentance and faith, what I'm holding before you is not a bunch of religious sentimentality. It's not just my thinking about Jesus. Salvation comes from the Lord. It is in Christ, in His person. And what we do every time we herald the Evangel is we are heralding the actual person and work of Jesus and saying to dead sinners, don't come to an idea. Don't come to being a Baptist. Don't come to being a Presbyterian. It's not about rich or poor. It's not about your political statement. It is about the second member of the Trinity, the monogenesis, that God the Father sent His only Son into the world and if you would turn from yourself and believe upon Him, you would have everlasting life. Friends, don't hold on to doctrine for salvation. Hold on to Jesus. The doctrine's in Him. We dare not hold a rattling hypothetical idea before people because rattling hypothetical conjecture of man will damn him, not save him. Why am I a definite person, atonement person? Because all of my salvation is not wrapped up in a maybe. It's wrapped up in a yes and amen of a person, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is nothing, nothing, nothing in Scripture that speaks hypothetically of the second person of the Trinity. Nothing. You have to get to a little, no name, Presbyterian pastor, in 1800, who is nervous that the God of all ages who birthed his saints into the kingdom cannot give them assurance in time before you come to nonsensical arguments like universal atonement. Our offer to this world of salvation is not hypothetical. It's not an idea. It is a person. The offer is valid because he really is the embodiment of all that is promised. He offers himself freely and has never denied anyone who meets the terms of the author. Look at John chapter 1 now, verses 12 and 13. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And how were they born, you might ask? Well, I'm glad God knew you would have that question at the end of that statement because he answers who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. The Father gives to the Son those that He will save. Now this is what is absolutely awesome. What is offered to the world, again, is not an idea, not a religion, not a sentimental feeling, not a love designed for all and therefore designed and designated for no one in particular. What is offered is the absolute fullness of all that Christ is and all that He has achieved for those who will hear His voice and follow Him. John Murray again here says of the true offer of salvation, if Christ, and therefore salvation, in its fullness and perfection is offered, the only doctrine of the atonement that will ground and warrant this overture is that of salvation wrought and redemption accomplished. And, that, and, and the only atonement that measures up to such conditions is a definite atonement. In other words, an atonement construed as providing the possibility of salvation or the opportunity of salvation does not supply the basis required for what constitutes the offer of the gospel. Listen to these words if you hear nothing else. It is not the opportunity of salvation that is offered. It is salvation. And it is salvation because Christ is actually offered. And Christ does not invite us to mere opportunity, but Christ invites us to Himself. No hypotheticals. Come to Jesus. In redemption, we do not offer, again, a hypothetical way to some eternal place. We offer them Christ or we neglect their salvation altogether. Our salvation is not in how we feel or how ardent our confession may be. Beloved, if you hear nothing else I say this morning, hear this. Our salvation is in the Lord. It is in who He is. And so if you struggle with your salvation, and friends, we all do, if you hit that day when you go, my feelings are out of joint and I just don't 
feel saved. Look to Jesus. Your salvation is not in your feelings. If you wonder, have I confessed enough? My friends, I promise you that Jesus made the good confession on your behalf. Rest in Him. Come to Him. Know that life is not in a hypothetical potential that you will see heaven. It's that when you see Jesus, this woman, think about it. She's at the well. And she says, I know Jesus is coming. And Jesus says, I'm Him. She in that moment understood that all of her longings had been met. When Jesus said, I will give to you a well that will come flowing up and you will never thirst again. Friend, the question is, is your soul satisfied, not in a hypothetical, not in a religious something that some pastors taught you, but is your soul satisfied in Jesus and in Jesus alone? And if it is, friends, then you are the most favored of all the earth. You can rest assured that you're believing this morning, that you're secure this morning, that you can be assured of heaven this morning, not because of what is in you, but because of all that is in Him. Our salvation, that atonement, the achievement of Christ is absolutely definite. Friends, we live in a world with a universal need. In the next week, you will face people who think they're okay. They're going to be going about their mundane life. I hope the next time you see somebody at the coffee pot or a water cooler, you can't forget the woman at the well who thought she was okay, going about her daily business. And you're going to face these kinds of people, and if you face them with spiritual truth, they're not going to get it in their own strength. If you tell them they must be born again, they're going to look at you like you're crazy. But the Spirit of God can open their mind and birth them anew. That's what Nicodemus teaches us. You may meet some people who you find undesirable, like this woman at the well who has no name, who has no reputation. But I promise you there is that same universal need. You'll find people who long to be satisfied. When you hear on the news that we are facing an epidemic as a nation with opioid addiction, you remember the woman at the well and the fact that she had this deep longing that needed to be satisfied. And you remember Nicodemus and his thirst for religious knowledge and his longing. And you'd, you don't look at that epidemic without realizing that that is a spiritual symptom, an opioid e epidemic, a longing to be satisfied. And so people are using th synthetic drugs to try and meet the need that only Christ can meet for them. That's a universal reality in our world that we long to be satisfied and what that points to is that we all need salvation can i ask you to do something on the authority of the word of god in light of those universal needs do not go into this community and hold before them a hypothetical gospel an idea a religion a moniker Hold before this lost and dying world the only one who definitely died for the sins of those who would call upon His name. And ask them, will you repent and believe? Because there is no life outside of that reality. It is only when we carry this gospel forward, when we take the name of Jesus into this community, that there is hope for the community to be transformed. Do you know how... How ludicrous. I think if Paul wrote to the church today, and I'm going to be careful getting on this bandwagon because I don't, I, Paul hasn't commissioned me, just to be clear. If he was going to commission somebody, he'd find somebody better. We have the gospel. We have the truth that Jesus said emphatically, I give my sheep eternal life and I lay my life down for them. We see the woman at the well thinking she's okay. Crudely literal in everything. Deep longing. Needs to be saved. We know the end of the story. The community is radically changed because she does come to know Jesus. And we have the audacity in our day and age, Cam, to believe that if we vote for the right people, that this country will change. 
I promise you, it will never change, even if we take Christian hypotheticals into this culture. It's only when we herald the definite atonement, the actual works of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that all of our life, all of who we are, depends upon Him. That we are a nation that needs grace upon grace. It's only when that gospel goes forward and then in God's kindness His Spirit moves and regenerates the hearts of men that we could ever hope to be changed. Now there's one more universal that I want to point to and we'll be done. So universally we have a need for the gospel. Universally we have a call for the gospel. We also, and, and here's the argument, here the, here's the crux of the problem with definite atonement and the accusation. Well, Jay, if you believe in definite atonement, you're not going to evangelize. Every time somebody says something like that to me, you know what I want to tell them? Well, you believe in universal atonement and you don't evangelize the way you should either. That's the other universal. Is none of us in this room, does anybody want to go up to the pulpit this morning and say, my witness is perfect and true? I, every time I see someone in need of Christ and I'm prompted in my spirit to go witness, I obey that prompting. We all struggle with taking the gospel into this community. Every one of us. So we have a universal, we have a universal need, we have a universal command, and we're universally pretty stinking awful at it. Which takes us back to the universal need that you know who we depend upon, Sarah? To see St. Angelo one for Jesus? It's your husband. Not. It's the kindness of the grace of our Heavenly Father. And so what we must do in this place is pray that He would stir our hearts, that we would see the universal need, and we would hold before that universal need the actual atonement that makes a difference. Would you pray with me to that end? Father God, we come before You today so thankful for Your Word so thankful to know in a world that is dark, that is so spiritually um, depraved, that Father is so hopeless, that You sent Your only Son into the world that whoever would believe upon Him, regardless of education, regardless of background, regardless of their sin life, that Father, those who come in repentance and faith would not be turned away, but would have everlasting life. Would You humble us Teach us to be wise stewards of Your Gospel. Father, I pray for our church and for me as the pastor and for our deacons and those who serve that, that we would not depend upon programs, but that we would depend upon Your Spirit moving among us, that we would be so enthralled with the Christ we have received in the true offer of the Gospel that we would take Him into this community and into this world. I pray, Father, that You would mold us into the likeness of Christ. Help us to speak the gospel winsomely and kindly and patiently. And Father, we long to see your hand at work regenerating the lives of those who are in desperate need of salvation, that they too would bring glory and honor to your name. Father, it is only you who can heal and bring grace upon grace. And what we declare this morning is that in our own lives, in this town and in this world, we are in desperate need of that grace. In Jesus' name we pray.